Welcome to the Birth Nurses Podcast. I'm Shana Brickner from Preparented, and I'm joined by my co-host Liz Baker-Wade from Birth and Beyond in Santa Monica, and we are the Birth Nurses. In this podcast, we're going to talk about birth, babies, breastfeeding, nursing practice, and more from our perspective as nurses in the hospital world. From two women who have been on both sides of the birthing bed, we've got some things to talk about that will enhance your understanding of birth. Whether you're a newly pregnant, first-time parent, or expecting your second baby and you want a better experience this time around, this podcast is for you. Join me and my co-host and special guests as we discuss birth from the womb to the room. Everybody, this is Liz and Shana. Hi. Hey, hi. How you doing tonight, Shana? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, it's I'm nighttime. Good. This is this is the time we have. How many of your children are actually asleep at this point? I think probably one and a half of them. <laughs> one and a half out of does that include the infant? <laughs> the infant is definitely sleeping, and then my four-year-old is probably dozing, and then my eight-year-old is probably reading a book and go. refusing to sleep, which is fine. Right, refusing to sleep. (laughs) So, um, awesome. All right, well, tonight, uh, Shana and I are going to expound a little bit on our last podcast, which was about refusing treatment. Mm -hmm. And we talked a little bit about the committee position on refusal of medically recommended treatment during pregnancy. And we wanted to unpack some of the difficulties that nurses face when we're assigned to a patient who is refusing suggested medical treatment and how we can help and how we figure this out. Um, And Shana's going to talk a little bit about empathy and empathetic listening. Yeah. 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 Well, first of all, I mean, I want all listeners to understand who are about to be a patient in labor and delivery that um, conflict is sometimes inevitable because this is a very sensitive subject it's an intimate thing that's about to happen you're about to give birth there's emotions are running high for for you for your partner and so in that kind of scenario conflict can be inevitable but I'm here to say it doesn't have to happen Um, I think that if you do your research and prepare ahead of time for the provider that you're choosing, um, the hospital setting that you're choosing, the, yeah, just the birth facility, that conflict can be avoidable. So yeah, we, last episode, we talked about those, those rights that you have as a pregnant patient. What if someone or your provider is suggesting an intervention or a treatment that goes against those rights that you need and have, how are you going to deal with that? And so the first thing I want to talk about is empathy, like Liz was saying. For the nurses, I think our our main goal when we're first meeting you is establishing rapport with you and uh, establishing that like no trust factor that um that you can trust us we're we're there to help you we're there to guide you through this really crazy journey of labor and delivery so i have to speak to that yeah because you know i've been doing this a long time and i 
often just automatically think that my client's going to love me. My patient's going to love me. Client <laughs> in the birth, the birth classroom, too. patient's going to love me. And I walk in there and you know what it feels like, Shanna, when you walk into a room and you just feel a bad vibe, like yeah. you're trying to introduce yourself and talk about what's going to happen that day and how are you feeling and try to establish a little bit of eye contact and you can tell, you know, over the next maybe hour or two that they're not into you. Yeah. So my thing is damage control and how I can gain trust. And Mm -hmm. that is something that happens and that everybody has to really talk about it because in class, don't your clients ask you like, what if I don't like my nurse? Yeah. (laughs) It's like, you know, um, yeah. Sticky situation. So talking about the empathetic listening Mm -hmm. over the years, I have, um, try to establish sort of routine. Like, what am I going to do? I need to go back in there mm-hmm. and I need to figure this out because there's yeah. nobody to switch with. We're really busy today. They don't seem like they trust me. So we'll talk more about that after you continue, please. Yeah. Well, the first thing I do to establish that uh, trusting relationship is introduce myself. And I try to make things... Uh, light and happy when I'm first interacting with a patient. Usually that works <laughs> because um, they're they're not in horrible pain quite yet. And even if they are, I'll wait till a break between contractions to do a quick introduction and to like relate to them on some level. So Liz, you and I are good at doing this because we've been pregnant before and we've had babies Mm -hmm. before. So we can say like, oh yeah, with my first baby, it was a very similar story. And then they're like, oh, you have kids too. You've done this before. Oh, I can. Okay. I'm feeling a little more trusting of you. You, you know what you're talking about. And then the next thing I do is I explain everything. Basically assuming they know nothing. Um, And if they start to speak to me in a way that uh, lets me know that they understand like the jargon, the labor and delivery language, then I'll be like, oh, did you take a birth class? Seems like you're educated, like you know what's going on and how are you feeling? And that's an interesting point. Yeah. Yeah. I sometimes I, you know, go into a room and there's something complex to talk about and I get to, you know, launch into my dialogue and try to be very um communicative and i've had people put their hand up and say yeah yeah, yeah i get it <laughs> right and they're like oh okay <laughs> like, well, cool. wait a minute i was just about to show you how brilliant i am <laughs> they just shut me down i don't want to yeah. hear it i understand what that is i don't want that yeah and then you have to regroup mm-hmm. and say okay we need to talk about how we're going to relate today right that's hard isn't it yeah yeah, yeah. and that's so when when we've gotten onto that good footing at first, she's like, "Oh, we can we can be friends. Like this is this is a good partnership. We're on the same team." Then, if there is conflict that arises with the patient and her OB, or maybe even between me and the patient, which doesn't always happen, but it, mm-hmm. it has in the past, um, then. You know, I I sit on the bed. We're trying to, like, to have that relationship and that conversation of just seeing 
where each other are at. Where are we coming from? So I'll ask questions. Are you feeling afraid to have this treatment done or have this intervention done? Okay, what's going on? Did What happened in the past that's making you feel this way? And asking those questions, trying to understand um, where these ideas are coming from. Maybe there was a birth plan. Maybe her sister had a really traumatic birth and she does not want to have that same experience. So oh, I hear there's that a lot. always a place where it's coming from, right? Yeah. Sometimes family and friends are trying yeah. really hard to give you their experience. Yeah. And it almost feels like they're projecting their experience on to patient. I've totally. had patients talk to me a lot about what happened to their mothers or their sisters and mm-hmm. that fear that hasn't been dealt with. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Very common. And again, like labor and delivery can be a very scary place. I think as nurses, we were, we've grown accustomed to just our experiences and seeing birth and seeing babies come out and, oh yeah, that's an appropriate amount of blood or Mm -hmm. whatever Mm -hmm. the case may be. And they don't know. So Mm -hmm. having that calm demeanor, like, okay, like this is... Um, this is normal. It's okay. You're doing mm-hmm. fine. Um, or if we do see something concerning, not freaking out. I think mm-hmm. I I like to say I'm pretty good at that in the hospital setting and at work. At home, I'm not so good. If my kid yeah, spills spills wine, so, no, they're not going <laughs> to spill wine. They're not going to spill wine. What am I talking about? If they spill something so your kids on are the ground, I'm like, I'm freaking out. But in the yeah. hospital setting, I feel like I can remain pretty calm yeah. and be that calming presence for my patients, which helps them to take that deep breath and realize, okay, I'm in trusting hands. They know what they're doing. It's okay. If someone throws a curveball my way, like, you know, offering an intervention or a treatment Mm -hmm. that wasn't on my to-do list or on my agenda, I can take a deep breath and try to see where my providers, my healthcare providers are coming from. And then we can have this open conversation. Anything you want to say about that, Liz? Do you have any specific stories, maybe, of this happening? Oh, my gosh. 150,000. That's right. I figured I'm at about 3,200 patients about now. Wow. You know, just sort of thinking of an average a week over 30 years. Amazing. A lot of babies. Yeah. Um, You know, I want to preface that our episodes kind of specifically tend to address nursing issues as that directly impacts outcomes, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. We are labor and delivery nurses. We are here to try to provide information to parents-to-be and nurses. Um, Yeah. You know, keeping it real about what's going on Mm -hmm. in the labor and delivery suite. So I want to say that I often take a very truthful approach to my patient. If my patient says, is the epidural going to hurt? I say, okay, look, the lidocaine that they inject in your back hurts like hell. Yeah. Because that's a trick. So when somebody says, this is a little stick or a little prick or a little bee sting, I say, "Uh, by the way, it's things like crazy. It's a little more than that. Just you're not, yeah, it really, (laughs) it, it hurts. And then when it gets really nice and numb, 
the next part doesn't really hurt very much. But compared to your contractions, it's probably not going to hurt as much as you think. But I just don't want you to get caught off guard. I do tend to just sort of lay it on the line. Mm -hmm. I often go into the patient's room and tell them who I am because I'm a little bit of a tidy freak. (laughs) So when I go in in the morning, pet peeve nurses out there, leave your morning and night nurses a clean room with empty garbage cans and uncluttered. Put whatever you can in the room for deliveries. It drives me crazy when I have to go in there and clean for 35 minutes. I don't really mind it. It's kind of soothing, but it's like, come on. Yeah. So I do that and I tell them, okay, you guys, I'm a little OCD about cleaning up. So I'm going to tidy up while I'm, you know, chit-chatting with you. Then I really do make sure that we have the responsibility to be able to back up the things we say with meaningful information, with evidence and literature. Mm -hmm. I try really hard not to say something that I can't back up with evidence, right? Just because it sounds good at the time. Um, When I was training way back when I was a youngin at UCLA, it's mid eighties, I started out, like I said, on a liver transplant unit. And then I went to labor and delivery about three years later in 1990. And my preceptor was going through a clinical educator program, master's degree. And she used to say, if I said something, do you have literature to support that? And it used to drive me crazy. And I thought it was obnoxious until I realized it wasn't obnoxious. Like you you. will develop a sense of looking at somebody in many years and say, she doesn't look right to me, but that takes a while. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to say something to your patient, make sure that you can back it up with evidence. And if your patient's saying something to you that isn't backed up in evidence or literature, then you can say, hey, let me tell you what I know from being an educator and working in this department for a couple of decades or six years. A nurse who doesn't uh, have children or never had a baby doesn't mean that she is an excellent, empathetic learner, has great um, skills in gaining objective information. A hundred percent true. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. But it may take some time to learn, dig a little bit deeper what's going on, because I really, truly believe a lot of times anger is really fear in disguise. Mm-hmm. And the distrust is because of a preconceived notion of us against them. That is something that is fostered out there in the world. And what we have to do is try to break that down. That's I'm true. here yeah. to give you the best maternal fetal outcomes that I can do. That's my whole job, maternal fetal well-being. There's nothing yeah. else for me to do. Yeah, I think another part of that, you were saying, you know, having that evidence-based information to share. When we're delivering that information of, um, you know, why this person, why this patient should go through this intervention or treatment mm-hmm. giving the benefits and the risks but renaming that as pros and cons because i think benefit risk is like a nursey kind of term but saying pros of you getting your water broken versus cons of getting your water broken it's kind of a more um common lay term that mm-hmm. we can use with our patients so that they're like okay i'm not mm-hmm. thinking of benefit of like um, super scientific 
like this is my body this is me and and a pro and a con absolutely there is there i have autonomy i have agency over mm-hmm. my own body and i want to know what the pros and cons are i do yes. use risk benefit because i talk a lot in literature terms i might say to a patient listen the evidence when we look at literature suggests that prolonged rupture of membranes with somebody that already has a temperature mm-hmm. suggests that a better fetal outcome might happen if we augment your labor with some pitocin because you're heading down a road to a fever and then we if that doesn't work then yeah. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna unpack Maybe another like, oh dang we're peel you back another it's a lot of vocab words <laughs> yeah and there are and there are patients who go yeah. oh yeah okay i get but it let get me it. talk to my partner about it or maybe they're alone and other people are will come right back at me and say i just don't want pitocin so what i think to myself is she didn't hear she didn't understand she's too overwhelmed mm-hmm or she is so married to her idea of what this needs to look like that she cannot hear me say that this is could go down a dangerous road. Mm-hmm. So I have to unpack all that and then figure out how to do it again, right? Yeah. Now yeah. I gotta, I've got to sit down and go, okay, I'm gonna start over. Let's just talk a little bit about what's been going on and blah, blah, blah. So sometimes your nurse really is trying to figure out a way to make you feel that she's empathetic, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wanted to tell a little story. So with my first labor, Mm. uh, my water broke. And (laughs) you have to tell them a bit. You have to tell Uh, the whole story. Okay. okay. I was in Palm Springs for my baby moon. (laughs) And I'm 37 (laughs) weeks and about four days, 37 and Three, something kind like that. of risky there, Shana. I know. Leave well, town I was, at thirty-seven I was thinking, plus. Like first babies, they're always late, right? But Who says? I, I didn't know how <laughs> my body was gonna be in labor. Anyway, we decided to go to Palm Springs, and my water broke in the hotel room, <laughs> and we just googled the nearest hospital and got to the hospital, and I was one centimeter, like ninety percent or hundred percent effaced, mm-hmm. and like minus two. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, you're having contractions, but they're like 10 minutes apart and they were really mild. So I wasn't really in that like active labor phase mm-hmm. and they wanted yeah, to, early. yeah, mm-hmm. they wanted to give me induction medication mm-hmm. and I didn't want it. So I think maybe three doctors and multiple nurses mm-hmm. came in my room trying to convince me that I should take some like induction medication or augmentation mm-hmm. medication yeah. and I kept refusing uh I did you feel really bullied? did you feel um, harassed I mean what, there, what were you yeah so there was a point when I did feel bullied I my main goal was to go unmedicated so that was part of the reason I didn't want to take any medication because I I knew that it was probably going to make the contractions more intense mm-hmm. and would like I would probably end up getting an epidural, which I, I didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, this one doctor came in my room, did not even look me in the eye, uh, was just looking at the computer oh, and mm-hmm. and saying like, "Well, if you don't do this, then blah blah blah." And I 
he said something that I don't want to say on here, but he said something that made me really upset and I started crying and my husband told him to leave and he left and he never came back. Um, but the, the doctor that I felt more, most comfortable with, she sat on my bed. Mm-hmm. She looked me in the eye. She said, you know what? Like you've kind of been stalled at whatever it was, seven mm-hmm. centimeters you know, what if you get an epidural? What if, what if you're able to take a little nap? And, um, and then if we need some Pitocin, we'll give you some Pitocin and and we'll get this baby out. It's been a long time. And she had me at the word nap. (laughs) And so (laughs) I said, okay, actually, you You had me at nap. (laughs) You had me at nap. She, I think she said, she said the whole epidural spiel like a little earlier, maybe when I was six centimeters, but then yeah. came back when I was anterior lip for yeah. a couple hours. And she's mm. like, we need, I, I think you just need to, to relax and an epidural would really help you. You can have a nap. And, mm-hmm. and that's when I was like, okay, fine. Get me an epidural. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it was really that, you know, she took the time to... Uh, get to know me because there were multiple like conversations before the oh, I'm epidural sure. offer. And trust me, as um, we all know, the rest of the unit knew who yes. Shana Brickner was. I who know. kicked the doctor out, who never I came know. back. So I'm sure they, they were like, all right, we need to, yeah, we need to approach her yeah. a different way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and this doctor really knew how. And you know, looking back, I I think I would have, I should have gotten the epidural earlier. Um, maybe around six or seven centimeters, but I, I was a little bit stubborn. (laughs) And then, you know, I went through the whole process of getting an epidural and it didn't really have time to work because I got it so late. And I mean, a couple minutes after she inserted the epidural catheter, I was ready to push. And then 30 minutes later, my daughter was born. So it didn't really have time to take effect the way I wanted it to, um, but all that to say, I think that doctor approached me the right way. Empathetic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, I'm here to, I'm here to help you. Yeah. And letting me yeah. make the decision. You know, mm-hmm. she, she gave me the benefits, the pros of getting an epidural that I could have a nap, which I never got that nap. But, um. For the next then, eight years. Yeah. And the risk <laughs> I already knew for the next yeah. eight years, the risk I already knew was that it was probably going to prolong things mm-hmm. even more. Mm-hmm. And I think actually the act of me sitting in that position to get an epidural with that hunched over back and bent How over. How often does that I think, happen? Yeah. So I think often. that's actually what got her lower in my pelvis. Mm-hmm. And then I was ready to push. So it's just funny how that worked out. It's so nice to hear also, I mean, that she gave you the opportunity, you Mm -hmm. know, you didn't have to do the epidural, you decided a nap might be good, and then it all worked out in your favor anyway. Yep. And isn't it so important? Um, I think that some of the other ways we can help by try to avoid talking to our patients in any sort of authoritarian, confrontational way and posture is really important i will grab a chair or one of our rolly stools and go up to my patient's bed and bring it down and get really you know in there and say you know so that i feel like if if they're standing i'll pace around with them Mm -hmm. 
and yeah, and just have a conversation. I'll usually, um, I, I go into my patient's room with a cup of coffee sometimes and kind of make it, you know, <laughs> like, it's like I ask the partner, mm-hmm. do you want a cup of coffee? Do you, patient, do you want some hot tea or do you want some water? And we just kind of sit down. It feels more like we're sitting and having coffee and talking mm-hmm. rather than this approach of this is what I'm going to do. And I think that it really helps sitting down, asking questions, know that distrust and fear are obstacles to a good relationship, and, you know, finding out the overriding concern. It might be something so minor, and then it might be something that I have to put away all of my ideas of how I'm going to make this, you know my way and go okay now here's a tricky part the nurse is often the liaison the communicator between the obstetrician and the patient and the obstetrician often it's like liz go talk to them which to me feels like go make them do what i want right and then i find more and more lately which is so great for me in our hospital is Sometimes I'll say to the doctor, are you really that invested in her having a vaginal exam right now? She really doesn't want to be examined. What if it's in an hour from now? If you could give me some parameters here. A lot of times the doctors I've noticed, even the doctors that have been doing this and are set in their ways, and we have a bunch of new doctors that, of course, we'd like to train them the way we want them to do things. (laughs) But the obstetricians that have been around for a long time, for some reason, lately, I feel like there's a little bit of a shift in fine, do what you want. I'm going to go see patients. And, you know, call me in a couple of hours and let me know if you were able to examine her and where she is, just so I can figure out what my evening's going to be like. And it's hard to tell a patient that your obstetrician is not only seeing 25 patients in his or her office, but she is then going to go home and has, especially right now, kids who might need to be on Zoom and dinner to be made and trying to get her you know, figure out what her evening is going to look like. Should I go home or should I stay at the hospital because she's nine centimeters? Right. And sometimes just kind of approaching it that way. I've had some okay success with that over the years. It's like, it's just so I can let the next shift know where you are or let your doctor know, should she go, should she stay? And I understand that it feels like I'm the patient and I'm in labor and why should I subject myself to something I don't want and you know if it comes to that I get it I can't Mm -hmm. always you know I can't always intervene on the obstetrician's behalf and have the outcomes they want but I do I do try yeah yeah and we want our patients to feel like they're queens you know that that they're the most important person Mm -hmm. because because we care about their health and their baby's health but it is, yeah, it's hard to explain that. Like, well, uh, we're not going to just call your doctor right now. It's two in the morning. Uh, we're not going to call them to ask this question because they're sleeping. <laughs> um, yeah, to, to explain that, they have, that your doctor has a life too. <laughs> That's sometimes hard to yeah. get across in a loving way. But yeah, for... For our patients to understand that is important. It is. Um, and it's also important to understand that we get it. 
that yeah. there's going to be times where our patients are just going to refuse intervention no matter what we've done. Mm-hmm. And we understand out there that there is um, a Bill of Rights, that you are within your right yeah. to refuse, but we do have to, I guess the word is, represent our hospital our nursing license protection and ourselves to make sure i understand that you are refusing a b and c but i want to make sure that you understood what i said so mm-hmm. that i may document that this conversation took place and i may even bring another nurse in the room and say i'm just you're here to witness that i have told this couple this mom at I've given a full explanation of the risk benefit to doing something. And the end product of this is that they're maintaining their refusal. I really try everything in my Mary Poppins bag (laughs) to avoid getting to that point. Yeah. Right. Because once that conversation takes place, there is no way of putting the genie back in the bottle. You know, (laughs) it just puts kind of this pall over the room. Mm-hmm. So we hear you. We want to achieve empathetic listening, but there is a point where we need to just lay it on the line. Like this is my position and I need to tell you why. And I need to document that we have yeah. the conversation. Let's talk more too about what's going on in your body through all of this. Like, first of all, she's probably mm-hmm. in labor we don't know if she has an epidural at this point or not. Let's imagine huh. our, our yeah. hypothetical patient. Mm-hmm. And she's experiencing painful contractions, let's say. And we're mm-hmm. trying to have this conversation. Like, what the heck? Can you imagine trying to have a conversation when you're in pain every uh, two yes, to four minutes? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. You it's can. It's burned sure. into my brain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so what's going on is, like, you're in labor. Oxytocin is flowing. That's what we want. That's the hormone we want to flow within your body. The love hormone. When we start to um, talk about intense things, there's a possibility that your cortisol level is increasing and your adrenaline is increasing. Yes. Uh, what's going on there, Liz? Can you give us a little science well, lesson? Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, the the mechanisms of labor is a cascade of hormones, uh, individual hormones that all come together in concert and work to produce contractions to push a person out of your body. We all know this. (laughs) But we also know that certain hormones like cortisol and adrenaline trump oxytocin. Mm -hmm. And getting fear and anxiety and anger, fatigue, frustration, all of those things can slow down labor and make labor dysfunctional. Yep. And sometimes when a patient's having dysfunctional labor, the conversation is, what's going on? Mm -hmm. Sometimes I find that around epidural shame. We'll talk about epidural shame for a minute. Epidural shame is when the people around you and or you collectively have decided in your birth plan for however many months that you absolutely do not want to have this intervention and then you decide to 
people often attach words to that, like they surrendered to it. Yeah, like finally relented. Gave in. I gave yeah. in. They use that kind of language. And I say that often sticks in the brain. It's like uh, the elephant in the room because they can't get a, they're, they're now feeling shamed. They're feeling defeated. They feel like they gave in. And certainly I've seen this so many times. They've disappointed the people around them, be it their parents, their best friends, their husband, their wife, or their doula. And I have a, a big problem with that. Mm-hmm. And I realize that, that sometimes if we can get our patients who have decided to get an epidural or to have IV medication, some kind of intervention pain-wise, um, I try to have those conversations about what you've all focus on what you've already accomplished. Yep. Okay. I'm going to give you my, my hideous birth story that I always tell all my birth class. I always tell everybody at the beginning of class, I want to get something out of the way here, just so you don't think that I had, I know you've had natural childbirth and uh, unmedicated childbirth. I know many people um, who have, mm-hmm. um, I had other than being really sick for 12 weeks, then really easy pregnancy. And then um, a failed induction at 40 weeks. My blood pressure was increasing, but he let me go home, monitored, and then I went into labor. And I went into labor. I told my husband, easy peasy. My grandmother had 10 vaginal births. My mother had four. My sister had vaginal births. You know, like we do this lickety split. So 37 (laughs) hours later at seven centimeters or five, six, seven centimeters, somewhere in there with a thick swollen cervix. My blood pressure's increasing. My temperature's going up. I've already tried every intervention and an epidural when, you know, I went right down the rabbit hole of every intervention possible. And of course, that led me to the operating room where I had my son um, a, a day and a half, almost two days later. So for me, I sort of went the other way of my usual controlling nature of how I like things to be. And I sort of surrendered when I went in there. In fact, a nurse friend who's still a nurse friend came in with a syringe and said, I'm giving you some morphine. And I, I don't know. I don't know if I want, I don't want, I don't know if I re-. And she's like, yeah, this is for, this is for both of us. You're, you're getting some, <laughs> but I totally understood what she meant. It's like, you are clearly unable to make a decision. You are exhausted. You are falling apart. You're really in a lot of pain and your labor is not being productive. So sometimes it just has to do with sleep and rest and surrender, but in a good way. Mm-hmm. Right? Just definitely. I tell people sometimes I five minute people for a whole other centimeter. People will say, I want an epidural. Okay, wait, no, I changed my mind. Okay, wait, no, go, go get. Go get her. Go get the anesthesiologist. Okay, wait. No, I'm not sure if that... No, don't do it. Wait. And I just sit there and go, all right, I'll play along. I sit and I go, Uh so can you do this for five more minutes? Can you get in the shower? Can you get on the ball? Can you stand up? And we might get a little bit further. Yeah. But that fine line of not seeming like I am coercing someone into doing something... Where in my mind, if someone's screaming and out of control, that might just be their thing and how they express themselves. And I, I feel like, well, 
She's still four centimeters. She's in terrible pain. How am I going to help her get to? Sometimes an epidural will help bring down those adrenaline levels, let oxytocin flow, patients dilate. Yes. And and I talk about that in class also, about the opposite of getting an epidural. Same. Um, When you're well in the active phase, sometimes Mm -hmm. works in that early prodromal phase. But again, it's waiting it out and kind of finessing it a little bit and figuring Mm -hmm. out at what point am I just going to blurt out my opinion? Right. Yeah. It's Mm -hmm. tough. Yeah. I also want to say I got an epidural with my third birth and I am so glad. And why didn't I get it with my first and my second? Like, it was lovely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) like, yes, I did the unmedicated thing, but also, and that was great because recovery was fast. Yeah. Yeah. But with an epidural, I was just as happy. Like, I I mean, I have, I have, I mean, I'm sure you've done this. I've had patients say I didn't have epidurals with my first baby or my first and second baby. And I really, I really want an epidural this time. You know, Mm -hmm. I want to just kind of relax through it. It's like, well, you're seven centimeters. So why don't you get in the shower and let's just, you know, like, are you sure? Because I always feel like, again, I don't want to be the person on the other end that gets associated with epidural shame. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? If a patient says, look, I've done the non-medicated thing a time or a couple of times, and I'm really happy this time, you know, I've decided and I'm like, cool, got it. Okay. Great. Yeah. Like you tell me that this is what you've already decided. Just like mm-hmm. I've had patients say, I did the epidural the first time. I really want to not do it the second time. And I, yeah. and I say, I will do everything I can in my little box of tricks to, to help you to avoid that. But if it gets to a point where we're not being productive or we need some intervention, I really want to, I want your permission to, yeah, to have a conversation about it before you, you know, yeah. I think the key is being flexible for both parties, your provider and for the patient, being flexible and going with the flow. Because like we always say, labor is unpredictable. Labor and delivery is unpredictable. Most important thing. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Understand that. Empathetic listening, everybody. Sit down next to your patient's bed. Look at them. Talk to them. Take a cup of coffee or a glass of water in there. Make it feel like an environment. Like, I'm here for 12 hours, you guys. Like, it's you (laughs) and me. Other than when I have to pee or I need to eat. (laughs) You know? (laughs) I'm in and out of your room all the time. It's you and me today. Let's talk about what we're going to do. And, um, you know, there is going to be there is going to be those times where you're, you know, you're not feeling it or your patient's not feeling it. And it's a struggle. And you just kind of maintain that sort of business, you know, business relationship throughout the shift. And other times it's just like you're sitting down and chit chatting with, you know, some friends. Yeah. And there's a yeah. pla- there's a time and a place for both. I Absolutely. The one time I, you know, went I got to work and started my shift with a patient who was like pushing. Mm-hmm. And so I really didn't have her for, for very long before I moved her to the postpartum unit. Yeah. But afterwards, she said to her baby or she said, <laughs> yeah, she was like, "Okay, go to Auntie Shayna." 
And she, like, oh, let me hold her baby. Right. Uh, and all of a sudden, I was promoted to auntie, you know. I'm like, how did this happen? Like, you, I've barely yeah. known you. But we, yeah, we had those, like, that intimate time together. I saw her birth and helped care for her. And she trusted me. And we had oh, yeah. this mutual respect for each other. And I became an auntie. So I, I think that's adorable. I often will say... Um, if someone's nine or 10 centimeters are about to push when the off going shift is leaving. And I know how it feels. It's like, well, I was with them like all night and got them through all this all and then I'm, and I'm leaving. So I say, usually say that, you know, so-and-so did all the work and I get all the fun probably <laughs> right. in the next couple of hours. So thank you very much for getting her whole, getting her through labor and blah, blah, blah. Right. Now we're going to push. So it does seem like. Hi, very nice to meet you. We've only known each other for an hour and 45 minutes because now right. you're going to postpartum. But boom, right. we're fast friends. But and... we're fast friends. <laughs> yeah. It is an intimate thing, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, it hi, was. or hi, I'd like uh, to examine your cervix. Right. It's like, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, you just met My me. name is Liz. <laughs> I'm your nurse today. Let's talk about what you're doing. Some uh, people really need, you know, it's like, you have to examine me before you have a conversation with me. Right. Right. Have to remember, just keep drilling it into our heads. That, that yeah. Well, I think we should wrap up, but yeah, we're good. This was a good talk, and just remember, if there is that conflict that comes up, um, we as nurses hope to deal with it in a calm way, where where you're trusting us, we're empathetic, but also we need we need help from our patients to meet us halfway. Yeah. Absolutely. Tell me what you need. Mm-hmm. Okay, babe. Yeah. I'll see you cool. soon. You have a good night. Thanks and for listening. Until we meet again, you guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Birth Nurses Podcast. If you enjoyed this, there are a few ways you can support us. First, you can share this podcast with your pregnant friends or new moms. Secondly, you can write a review and rate us on iTunes. And thirdly, we would love if you would check out our Instagram accounts and websites. I'm on Instagram as Preparented and online www.preparented.com. And Liz is on Instagram as Birth Nurse Liz and her website is birthandbeyond.net. Thanks for listening.